We're in conversation today with Lieutenant General John Whistler, United States Marine Corps, retired for the do-over. Lessons learned in the span of one's career that we would love to have a shot at uh, taking another shot at them. General Whistler. Thanks, Dr. Thomas. It's really great to be here. And I'll tell you what, I said it before, I'll say it again. Leadership is a contact sport and everybody's going to want a do-over. And I'll share one of my do-overs. Take yourself back to uh, sort of the, the early stages of the fight in Iraq. Uh, from 2004 to 2006, I was the commanding general of 2nd Marine Logistics Group Forward. Um, in 2004, I went on a, a, a site survey. What came out of that was during that period of time, I, I basically failed to properly mentally train and equip Marines and sailors for their duties as provisional mortuary affairs Marines. Those Marines are now called personnel recovery platoon Marines. The name matters not, the function is what's most important. So mortuary affairs or personnel recovery, as you put it, General, is, is, a, is something that's not known to many people. It's a tough, tough job. Describe a little bit of what that job actually entails. Yeah, so I encountered it in two different manners. Um, the first, the first piece was for a platoon of truck drivers, uh, actually a, a, almost a company of truck drivers, young men and women age, you know, 18 to 22. They were the age of most of our midshipmen at the Naval Academy, some more senior than that, but that's the bulk of them, who maybe a day or the week before were delivering sustainment throughout Ambar province and, and further. And yet, in this situation, uh, after the Second Battle of Fallujah, they're out recovering remains, not of U.S. service members, but of Iraqi civilians uh, or other people who had been um, killed in the most heinous of ways, people who had been tortured to death, people who had unspeakable atrocities put on, people who had been disemboweled who they were trying to recover those remains from animals that were trying to consume their remains. All these things going on for young men and women who the day before were simply responsible for operating a seven-ton truck or, or being a turret gunner or being uh, hypersensitive to the potential for uh, improvised explosive devices. Uh, and then you have the normal personnel recovery, the normal mortuary affairs Marines who are dealing with the gruesome deaths of people perhaps that they know, but certainly if they don't know people who that they have a fine kinship with, other Marines who may have gone to boot camp at the same time, who were who suffered a grisly death, burned alive, dismembered by improvised explosive devices, remains that show up not even in sufficient quantity to say that this is the entirety of what that young that young man or, or woman was before their death. So they came out of this traumatized. They came out of this with significant post-traumatic stress. General, can you give us a feel for the scope of this? I mean, when when one hears the Second Battle of Fallujah, you think of one of the, the greatest 
urban combat environments uh, in in modern American history. So these provisional mortuary affairs personnel, who I, I assume then were not necessarily trained for that, they didn't carry an occupational specialty for that. They were just kind of a pickup team. To me, that's what provisional means. And if that's the case, how many how many sets of human remains, uh, roughly, uh, were they responsible for? Numbers in the hundreds. Very difficult to determine exactly how many they recovered because a lot of it was pieces and parts. A lot of it was, unfortunately, taking those remains away from the dogs that were roaming the streets. It was uncovering torture chambers and finding pieces and parts of human remains throughout the entirety of the city of Fallujah, one of the larger cities uh, in Iraq. And this was obviously, you know, weeks and into a, a month after this horrible battle. And I say horrible in the sense of the loss of human life. The scale of this is really large. Bodies that number in the hundreds, manner of death, uh, as you as you mentioned, is indescribable here. Some of these things are result, death resulting from torture. But we're also talking about a month plus later. So decomposition is also a big factor in this, in the heat of Anbar province in Iraq. Absolutely. Uh, the conditions were, I would offer, almost indescribable. Um, and yet these Marines committed to an unbelievably dignified way of going about what they needed to do and how they would execute that mission um, and then return back to finish their deployment as, for most of them, truck drivers, continuing to deliver sustainment across all of Ambar province and, uh, and, in fact, across what was much larger than Ambar province at that time in the multinational Division West battle space. So when I came back in 2005 to command the logistics organization for multinational Division West, as I was a leader out making my rounds, making sure that I was uh, getting a sense of the battle space, if you will, I made it my mission to go out and visit our officially assigned Mortuary Affairs Marines. But once again, what I found out was the Marine Corps had a paucity of trained Mortuary Affairs Marines, now Personnel Recovery Marines. And so we had created provisional units, mostly out of some supply units, across the Marine Corps. And we would give them a rudimentary training, but it was more in the process. It was how to identify the remains, how to take personal effects, how to bag up personal effects. All of the things that you want to do very deliberately, very delicately, so that the things that are returned back to families, that they have recovered everything about their loved one. But there was virtually no significant training in the psychological impacts. Would, would it be fair to say then that, uh, and this is how I would imagine a young Marine reacting to this uh, extra duty or collateral duty, if you will. Uh, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Uh, recovering bodies, uh, American, Iraqi, or, or otherwise, I didn't sign up to do this. I'm not trained to do this. Did you get uh, that reaction from some of them or, or, or was their reaction something different? No, I have to say that their reaction was one of, like most Marines, they wanted to take on whatever responsibility they could take on to be a part of the fight. 
as as some of them Marines in the Marine Corps Reserve. They wanted to be able to say that they had participated um, in, in this great conflict, which they believed was necessary and that they believed they were providing a mission to support their fellow Marines. And you could see it in their compassion. Um, on one occasion, I, I was actually in the, the mortuary affairs facility when they brought in a, a KIA Marine. Along with him came some of, the, some of his fellow Marines. They were distraught. And these, the compassion with which these Marines were dealing with this, this dead Marine and their ability to transmit that compassion to their fellow Marines gave them a true sense that they were a valuable part of what was going on. So while some of them became significantly troubled by what they had to do, I never sensed that initially they felt they would have rather been doing their sort of other occupation because for many of them, it was their opportunity to serve in Iraq and to serve in the fight against Al Qaeda. So as I'm going around the battle space, visiting, and I made it a point everywhere I went, we had several mortuary affairs organizations set up around the battle space. I would always make a point of going and visiting the mortuary affairs Marines. And what I found out was not many of them were, you know, really open and honest about discussing things in their workspace. Didn't really understand why that was. Perhaps I didn't have the right open and honest feedback loops that I needed to have. Um, so I chose what I found was a better place sometimes to get honest and frank conversation, and that was in the chow hall. And so I remember being at uh, Al-Assad, doing a visit up there, went into the chow hall and, and, and went over to a bunch of Marines that I recognized were the mortuary affairs Marines. And they were sitting sort of way off in the back of the chow hall by themselves. And I, I asked them, I said, hey, you guys, you fellas mind if I join you? And they said, no, sir, but why would you want to sit with us? And I said, well, I just kind of want to have a conversation, see how it's going. And their comment to me was, but, but don't, you, don't you smell it? And I, I didn't really understand what they were talking about. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they go, sir, we, we smell like death. We work around it all day long. We we know that we probably bring that that smell with us. And it was at that point that I sort of realized there was obviously some trauma going on here that they felt themselves different because of what they were doing, that they dealt with that death maybe without the the mental preparation. And and as I said previously, this group of Marines were reserve Marines and I was very concerned about where they were going to be able to move from there. Well later in that deployment as it turned out, I was given command of all of the 2nd Marine Logistics Group. And as a result of that, the Commandant of the Marine Corps came to Ambar Province. And, and he and I visited the Mortuary Affairs Marines as part of that. And I, I, I brought up to him the fact that we needed to do something for them. And, and the real concern I had was that as Reserve Marines, they wouldn't go back to that, to that collection, to that, to that group of Marines, to that culture that would be able to put their arms around them and to see if they were any mental distress. So we, we went and modified the existing plan, which would have included, uh, if I remember right, a 30-day uh, and then a 120-day you know, get-together, if you will, in terms of their drill. And we modified that to a 30, 60, 90, 120-day. We tried to bring in mental health professionals. 
this really allowed us to to bring about some changes in policy, to change about funding, to be able to bring at least uh, in the interim some some I some support, some mental health support. But as I looked back on it, as I reflected on it, what what I realized was I was so focused then on the post blast, if you will, on the on treating what had already taken place, my real failure was not to put in place something to prepare them for the next deployment. I failed to to really get them trained mentally as well as operationally to include, I would offer screening for those people who perhaps wouldn't be be best prepared for this kind of very arduous duty. Although, you know, in comparison, if you will, right, we think about that forward deployed out in the fight infantrymen or motor tra- the people out dealing with IEDs or with enemy contact we think about them, but we don't always think about this. You know, diverse organizations require diverse thinking. You've got to think across the breadth of the organization. And so while I was focused more on body armor and marine armor kits and mental health support for our surgical shock trauma platoon personnel, I failed to, to really be aware of all members of the team, to put those things in place, to take the time to understand the psychological impacts of combat across the breadth of the organization. And then more importantly, to do what leaders are supposed to do, right? To identify the critical problem and to to put in place those things that will prepare leaders, especially in combat, but I would offer in any stressful situation, be prepared to take on those most psychologically challenging assignments. So, General, let me ask you this. Uh, what what does that actually look like? Because when you mention screening, that would be a great first step to screen folks who probably shouldn't be put into this position in the first place. I totally understand that. But for your typical young man, young woman, uh, perhaps even out of the country for the first time, how does one prepare that young Marine for something so out of the ordinary, so traumatic as these hundreds of casualties, American, Iraqi, and, and such, and in all the various states of, of the corpses and, and that you described earlier, how does one prepare someone psychologically for that? I, I think first and foremost, we get them to prepare themselves by reading, by, by reading about what the nature of combat can bring. Uh, Second of all, by having them engage with those who have already encountered these very same things, to bring some of those Marines who had already served as mortuary affairs Marines or who had already seen these, you know, very heinous acts committed on fellow human beings, to be able to share their experience just to get these just to get the young Marines, these young women and men to think through how will I look, how will I feel, how will I react when I'm faced with the same situation? Um, and, then, and then to offer them that, that opportunity to reflect personally such that understanding their commitment to this isn't 
just a commitment to serve, just an opportunity to serve, but an opportunity to serve in a very unique and challenging and difficult way. So I, I absolutely love that. So screening, having them read, having them exposed to other people who have experienced similar uh, circumstances and and uh, situations like that. That's a great way to prepare. How about during combat now? How about, what would you do if given the opportunity again, and say you, you put all those, those pre-event uh, instances into play, that you were able to prepare them the way you best would want to. When you would visit uh, at, at the chow hall or in their uh, living spaces at uh, in you know, the tent city that they were living in, whatever the case may be, what might that conversation look like? How does one care for Marines and sailors when they're in the fight? How does one prepare for post-traumatic stress or combat operational stress while still engaged in the fight? Yeah, I think it takes the leader to ask very directed questions. Um, I learned and got much better at it by the end of my deployment. But rather than asking the simple question about how's it going or how are you feeling, asking a specific question like, what's the most difficult recovery that you've done lately? What was the, what was the thing that, that, really brought about your most significant emotional response. And for some of them, it's going through personal effects. You know, for some of them, it's the nature of the injury, uh, a burn victim. Um, you know, for some of them, it's, uh, it's just the person may have been from their hometown, but asking a pointed question to get them to open up a little bit and then not being trained as a mental health professional being able to go back and to identify those individuals to recommend perhaps that they go see a mental health professional. Um, and if not, to get a visit from a chaplain or a visit from a mental health professional who were all accustomed to going to these different places, but to give them a little bit more specificity, a sharper target, if you will, um, so that we could have helped them to open up, help them to do the things that they needed to do to build their resilience, right? To get them through the process, um, to get them through that bell curve of reaction that, as in many cases, some of these young men and women came out stronger on the back end of this. And then to help them help others to be able to at least come back to their normal, if you will. Yeah back stronger. Sometimes we refer to this as post-traumatic growth. What's your, what's your reaction there? I mean, I hear about this a lot. And in fact, this seems like a, an objective that we, we set people up for, uh, for traumatic situations like this in hopes that they will actually get better as a result. They'll become harder as a result. They'll, they'll become more resilient. Uh, in, in looking back now in your experiences, particularly in, in Iraq that you're talking about now, what proportion uh, would you estimate actually does come back having experienced post-traumatic growth as opposed to uh, post-traumatic stress? I, I, would, I would hate to put a number on it because, to be honest, I haven't. But I would, I would offer that there's probably, you know, and this is, this is a guess, but I would say somewhere in the 10 to 12, 15 percent, maybe, I don't know, somewhere in there 
that do come back visibly stronger as a result of this. Do you think that can be broken down and analyzed as to what that is? Is it is it innate? Is are some people just naturally inclined to to handle things like this in a different manner, uh, or or is it something that can actually be learned? Uh, my, my sense is that some of it can be learned in the sense that it was through preparation. And by that, I don't necessarily mean an official preparation, right? I don't mean necessarily a training that was provided to them, but they had had previous life experience. They had endured trauma before and had had come out of that, maybe not stronger, but they knew how to deal with it. And then when encountered in a second scenario, they because they knew how to encounter it, they they drew on that and then from that became stronger. So General, you mentioned this concept of post-traumatic growth. And this is an interesting one. And in, in some ways it seems like an outcome we're all after here. How does how do you train, educate, develop individuals so that they're prepared for this in the best possible way, uh, that they come away somehow better as a result of exposure to trauma or, or difficult trying circumstances. You've experienced this place for four years, the immersive environment for four years. You've come back here since then to, to teach and share your lessons of a, you know, drawn across the span of a 30 plus year career. Tell me, what can or should we be doing at the Naval Academy that sets graduates up for that type of success? Thanks. Yeah, I think based on my experience, part of it started obviously before I ever got to the Naval Academy, and that was I experienced failure. You get cut from a team. You, you don't get picked on the playground to be, you know, whatever. But I think my most you know, my largest initial failure happened plebe summer, right? And I thought the beauty of plebe summer was it it drove everyone to a level of failure. And out of that failure, you you could not dwell on the failure. You had to analyze it. You had to understand it. You had to you had to understand where you were weak and how you needed to be stronger. And it caused you to uh, reflect on how you were going to prevent that failure from taking place. And so I think resilience is built on an ability to deal with failure. And so I think the idea of this four years of not letting people live inside their comfort zone, if you will, of pushing people uh, academically, physically, mentally, you know, outside the classroom pushing the envelopes of where they're comfortable will, and then giving them mechanisms to be reflective. This idea of studying the Stoics, of studying great leaders who've endured great challenges before and have, I would offer, come out stronger. Certainly Admiral Stockdale, one of those people who picked up this capability, uh, you know, this idea of Stoicism later in his life. But, but to take these what may be perceived as sometimes academic uh, ideas or concepts, but to put them in place in, in a very pressure-filled environment, but one that also provides positive feedback for where and when people have recovered from failure. I think that's how you build resilience. And I think that's where the midshipman 
need to see and focus on how these things are important in the curriculum, but where they translate. And so that the midshipmen take opportunities to push themselves into areas where perhaps it's outside their comfort level, where maybe for many of them, it will be the first time that they will have have experienced a failure, not of a failure morally or ethically, but of a failure of their ability to achieve something that they wanted to achieve. And then secondarily to that, to focus on this study of warfighting, because it is critical to them. It is the thing that will potentially give them the most challenge in their careers. So experience failure, be a student of your profession, prepare yourself well. Now, what happens if we have a midshipman sitting in class right now that is prone to thinking, well, this is all well and good, but it's not going to happen to me. Uh, your your experience, your life uh, you know, involved all these traumatic events or exposure to these events uh, because we were at war with in Iraq or in Afghanistan. But I, I just don't see it happening on my watch. What do you say to them? What I would say to them is um, I'll give them a personal and then a, a reflective, if you will, current events example. I don't think any of the midshipmen that went on summer cruise on the USS McCain or the USS Fitzgerald realized that they were going to encounter a very traumatic situation, a situation in which they needed to be prepared to take on the responsibility to save the ship and to save the lives of fellow shipmates. My own personal example is short of just over a year after graduating from the Naval Academy, I was in my first helicopter crash that in a CH-46 that crashed into the ocean with three Marines who couldn't swim. And that experience was, at least in the moment, very traumatic. Um, So I don't think you can ever say this won't happen to you. I deployed on what I thought as a young captain was going to be a routine deployment to Central America, which became something else when there became indications that Nicaragua had desires to encroach on Honduran sovereignty. So to say that it's never going to happen to you is is certainly not a fact. And then I would just offer that the events of daily life, you may very well encounter this in a totally different way. You may encounter it in the death of the loss of a child or the death of the loss of a loved one or some other traumatic situation that you come upon. So to use this excuse, and I would say that very strongly, this excuse is I don't need to do it because it will never happen to me. This idea of dealing with traumatic stress is one that it impinges on everybody's life. It is certainly heightened in the combat environment. And certainly, if someone sticks around the military for a career, history says you will encounter it. But I would offer there are many other occasions, whether it be training, whether it be day-to-day life, where you need to prepare yourself. Because the nation expects that the Naval Academy will produce young women and men who are women and men of character and are women and men who can lead in these most difficult of situations. And to fail to take this four-year opportunity to make yourself the best you can be in that, I think is a true shirking of your responsibilities and a true shirking of the opportunity that you've been given by 
given an opportunity to be a member of the Brigade of Midshipmen. Okay, powerful words, uh, words to live by, actually. So one more time, what was your do-over? My do-over was that I would like to have had a better understanding for the diverse nature of my organization and to more effectively be proactive to prepare people for the trauma that they were going to face as opposed to simply after digesting what was going on to the reactive, helping them, if you will, after the blast to help them once they had sustained this trauma, to make them more resilient on the front end so as not to have to deal so much for them, many of them, with emotional scars that may last a lifetime. Well, General, it's often been said that we learn best from our mistakes. We learn best from our failures. You've given us uh, some something to think about today, the uh, failures you experienced, the mistakes that you've made over time, and uh, I think we're all going to be better as a result of it. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Dr. Thomas.